Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we visit CBIT to talk to people about robots and 3D displays. But first up, here's the news. (music) 3D printed Kiwi Rockets. Los Angeles and New Zealand company Rocket Lab have launched a carbon fibre rocket with 3D printed engines pumped by batteries from New Zealand's remote Mahir Peninsula. The company plans to offer regular satellite launching service more cheaply than anyone else at $5 million a launch instead of $60 million a launch for a SpaceX rocket. Less than a tenth of the cost. This was the first orbital class rocket launched from a private launch site anywhere in the world. There are very few ships and planes to the south of the Mahia Peninsula, which is why the company's launching from New Zealand. Rocket Lab have approval to launch up to 120 times a year. The launch was delayed three times because of bad weather. After all, New Zealand is known as the land of the long white cloud. The clouds matter because while rockets can punch right through them, clouds cause friction to build up charges of electricity on the sides of the rocket which can zap electronics. It's a static build-up called triboelectricity. The launch on the 25th of May successfully reached space, but was unsuccessful in reaching orbit. During the test, the booster's first and second stages separated successfully, but the upper stage failed to reach the desired orbit of around 500 kilometres above the Earth. There are two more tests scheduled for 2017. The 17-metre Electron rocket is built of carbon composite, designed and manufactured in New Zealand over four years. Rocket Lab has developed the Rutherford engine for use in the rockets, the world's first oxygen hydrocarbon engine to use 3D printing for all primary components. The thrusters, which are also known as Super Draco rocket engines, were made from an Inconel titanium-based alloy and produced using a metal 3D printer. Printing these components takes around three days, using a melting electron beam sintering 3D printer. Using high-performance lithium polymer batteries to drive its drink can-sized turbo pumps, these engines can deploy a satellite to a commercial orbit using very little fuel. Rocket Labs are not aiming to take traditional satellites to space. Instead, they want to help send up small devices, like CubeSats and NanoSats, that travel in swarms or constellations. The Electron rocket costs just less than $5 million to make, and can carry 225 kilograms of cargo into orbit. For comparison, a brand new reusable SpaceX Falcon 9 lists at $60 million per launch and can carry 22,800 kilograms into low Earth orbit. Rocket Lab hoped to launch as often as 50 times a year, while SpaceX launched just six times last year. Rocket Lab's customers include NASA, the small satellite companies Planet and Spire, and even Moon Express, which hopes to launch a moon probe and win the Google Lunar X Prize on an Electron rocket. 
Rocket Lab has just sold a future launch to Spaceflight Industries, a company that acts as a broker for access to launching cargo on rockets. Since they started in 2006, Rocket Lab has developed and launched more than 80 suborbital rockets. You can book launch space directly from their webpage. New Zealand has created new rocket legislation and set up a national space agency. The Australian government commissioned a review of Australia's space laws which was submitted last year by Professor Stephen Freeland, but for some reason they've delayed releasing the report for six months. So far. Professor Freeland spoke with me about this on Diffusion last December. Battery-operated, 3D-printed rockets, empty of cloudy skies, modernised legislation and a national space agency have put New Zealand in the lead in the space race in the Southern Hemisphere. Watch this space. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At the Consumer Electronics and Business Information Technology Show, CBIT, there were several kinds of robots at the University of New South Wales stand. I spoke with Professor Claude Summit of the School of Computer Science and Engineering and head of the Artificial Intelligence Research Group. I began by asking him to tell me about the robots he had on display. So I've got a few different robots. There's one which is an industrial robot that we use for our research in human-robot interaction. We've got a domestic robot that's from Toyota that was doing work in obviously at-home types of robots. And we have some examples of robots that we've used in competitions for robot soccer. Now, the robot soccer's been going for quite a while. Yeah, so the, the Robot Cup is a competition that started in actually 20 years ago, 1997, and it's since expanded, so it's not just for soccer now, but there are competitions for rescue robots, at-home robots, industrial robots, but we've mostly been competing in the soccer, and we've, we've actually been world champions five times in that, so we're, we're doing quite well and still you know, try, trying to keep, keep our reputation going. <laughs> You used to have the little Ibo dog-type robots. What do you use these days? Yeah, so originally we had the Ibos that were made by Sony. But then the, when they stopped making those, we then went to, to a, a, the Aldebaran Now robot. So Aldebaran was a French company now being bought by SoftBank, a Japanese company. But it's a small humanoid robot. So that's actually more challenging to do than the quadruped because a quadruped is reasonably stable. With a biped, there's a lot of work, you know, keeping the, the walk stable, not falling over, and being re- ag- agile enough to be able to get around the ball, kick the ball, that's, that kind of thing. So that's where, although we're playing competitions and they look like fun, well, they are fun, but there's a lot of research gone into developing the locomotion. And in fact, that's the reason why we won in 2014-2015, that we had the fastest and most agile walk of any of the teams. And because it's meant to be a research-driven competition, not purely just for the competition, we always publish all of our code. So in fact, on many of the teams last year were using our, our walking code. So even though we didn't win last year, our code was in the final <laughs> because there are other teams using our code. That's the wonder of open source software. Open source, that's exactly, exactly yes. That's why, uh, well, that's, that's why it's, uh, there's been a lot of progress in, in this area because, because people keep publishing their work and gets reused. Instead of people starting from scratch all over again, they're building on what people have done previously and adding their innovations. So it means that the field progresses much more quickly. When I came last year, some of the humanoid robots 
as soon as they were falling over as soon as they kicked. Are they doing yeah. better this year? Uh, yeah, well, that's that's where the research in, in the locomotion comes in. It's learning, get, working out how to read the sensors from the robots and be able to respond quickly enough and work out how to balance it. Obviously, these robots are, are not nearly as capable as humans are, so they're going to fall over, but they do better. But also, remember, robots sort of, sort of get tired too. Their gears wear out, they overheat. So often what happens is they start out during the game doing quite well, but as the game progresses and they overheat, then they, they fall over more. And what's the challenge with your home service robot? So that's actually involves a lot of artificial intelligence because it's interacting with people a lot more. So we have to be able to talk to the robot and it respond with speech. So it's got to be able to understand the language. But language understanding isn't just sort of the syntax and the grammar because like when we're talking to each other, we can see our faces, we can see our gestures, we know what we're pointing to. So it's the combination of understanding the language and also kind of reading the person and what they want and also understanding what, what are the intentions. So if I ask the robot to go get me, the say, the blue cup from the kitchen and there's only a red cup, um, should it still get it? Get it? And probably it should. Right? So there are things like that, that that it has to reason about. Um, it's got to be able to recognize different people, so it's using vision. Um, again, you know, if it's meant to, to help people, say, who are disabled or elderly, and like if, you're, if I'm immobile and I wanted to go get to fetch something, then um, it's got to be able to recognize the object, pick it up. And one of the things that we don't appreciate because we do it so easily is that our hands are extremely capable, very dexterous, and we can pick up objects of all sorts of different shapes. And, and uh, that's still something that's a big area of research because the sort of manipulators that robots have, we're still developing those and being able to, to be as dexterous as we are is still quite a long way off. And you've got a larger robot over there. Is that the Baxter? That's the Baxter. So that's a commercial robot that, again, we're using. So Because we're a school of computer science and engineering, so our focus is on the software, not the hardware. So we try to use off-the-shelf hardware. But it was originally developed to be sort of for cooperative manufacturing. So when, like, if, if you're setting up a big manufacturing line, that's for big volume stuff where, where you can afford to put a lot of money into a custom robot production line. This is meant for if you're doing sort of short runs. Humans tend to do that. And humans will still do that because they're more dexterous. So this is meant to be cooperative where the, the robot is kind of pulling together the material that, that, the, that the human needs and then allowing the human to do the actual sort of construction. So it's cooperative. And the research we're doing is, is in that sort of cooperation with, that we want to look at people who are working with the robot doing some cooperative task and understand what do we need to do to make the robot behave in a way that the human will trust it and understand what it's doing so that it does trust it. As robots sort of become more and more prevalent in society, understanding how we interact with these things is very important. So that's, that's the, the focus of that particular research. And if people want to start learning about robots, what sort of platforms do you recommend they start with? So most of the software that we use runs on Linux things, so, and that's all open source. And there are, there's a lot of open source software that's available for robotics. And even if you can't afford to buy the hardware, there are simulations that you can run. So all of our, these robots here are running Linux and what's called ROS, a robot operating system, um, which you can Google and it's on the web and you can download and it's free. It's, that's quite a complicated thing to get into. But then even if you uh, uh, start with um, kits like Mindstorms or TurtleBots, things like that, they're, you, they're, still, they're still capable enough that you're learning a lot about robotics we're using those uh, sort of smaller platforms. A lot of schools now 
are going into robotics competitions. Like there's a, like we work in Robocup the majors, but there's also a Robocup junior, and a lot of schools are going into that. So if they do want to, like if school kids are interested in going into that, there are quite a few avenues for getting into robotics. Well, Claude Samet, thank you very much. Welcome. That was Professor Claude Samet from the School of Computer Science and Engineering, head of the Artificial Intelligence Research Group, talking about robot soccer players, robot assistants for the disabled, and cooperative robot helpers for human tradesmen. Sometimes I kind of miss the old XJ9 that we used to call Jane. Really good at cleaning and we got along fine so I couldn't complain. And they ripple and slide under translucent skin Sometimes you stand for hours looking into the mirror And flexing like some guy at the gym And I'm easily ten inches shorter
That was Todd the T-1000 by Jonathan Coulton. You can hear more of his music at jonathancoulton.com. In a dark tent, glowing lights drew me in to see a multicolour animated three-dimensional electronic display that wasn't a hologram and didn't need special glasses. I spoke with Gavin Smith, Chief Technical Officer of Voxon Photonics. I began by asking him to tell me about his 3D display system. This is the uh, VX1. Uh, it's a volumetric display uh, that can display any sort of 3D media uh, in three physical dimensions. So we're th- effectively 3D printing with light. And how does it work? Uh, if you've ever had a campfire where you've had a, had a burning stick and you've drawn circles in the air, it works in a similar principle. Uh, we're, we're, where the burning stick, your persistence of vision is connecting the, the, the red dots together to see a circle. So what we're doing is we're projecting image slices of 3D geometry onto a screen that's moving up and down very quickly. Uh, And those slices uh, effectively 3D print the image into the air. So what you're seeing is your persistence of vision joining those cross sections together to create a tangible 3D object, which is made up of 4,000 slices every second. And you've got a dome over the top. The dome is there to stop people putting their fingers into the display. It can be removed, and uh, for art installations where people are more aware of not touching the art, then we can take it off. Uh, but in schools and in uh, tech shows, people, people kind of don't know what's happening, and they just put their finger in, and they won't hurt themselves because it's a, it's a harmonically resonating screen. It's very low power, but they might break the screen, so that's why we have the dome on. So the system's low power? Yes, yeah, it's 150 watts running on 12-volt DC power brick like an Xbox and this can do full color it can just go all day it can do one bit dithered color so the same color palette as you probably would have got in about 1984 but those one bits are running at 4,000 frames per second so there's a trade-off between how many frames you can project and how many colors but we use a combination of dithering algorithms to create uh, simulated color just like newsprint uh, we use very small dots of pure red green and blue to create secondary colors we also do what's called spatial and temporal dithering so on the z-axis as the screen's moving up and down for example you can create a yellow voxel by displaying a blue voxel and a green voxel directly after each other and so looking down through the display the light is blended together to create secondary colors so using this spatial and temporal dithering we can create simulated sort of 24-bit color palette and at the moment it looks like it's flickering if it was able to go faster would that get rid of the flickering yes absolutely so the volume refresh rate just now is variable depending on where in the volume the the object is being displayed so near the top and the bottom of the display it's 15 times a second and in the middle of the display it's 30 times a second so as our material science gets more advanced then we can make the screen material lighter and we can move it faster and once we get up to the double the refresh rate that it's at just now then you'll have a minimum of 30 hertz and a maximum 60 hertz and so on until you get to the point where effectively flicker is no longer perceivable by the human eye and where will people see these 3d displays currently these two here are the the first two we've built Uh, our company is based in adelaide in south australia we also have a team in america our chief computer scientist is a, is a guy called Ken Silverman who uh, wrote the graphics engine for Duke Nukem, the first graphics game. So he's uh, one of the world's greatest computer programmers. So our, our R&D manufacturing, mechanical and the whole business development is based in Adelaide in South Australia, the Tonsley Innovation Precinct. Will you be having something in Vivid eventually? What's Vivid? Oh, okay. So in Sydney, starting this week, 
we have a festival of light based art. Ah, right. And this is that would where they fit project right onto in. The, uh, Sydney Opera House? They that, uh, project on the Sydney Opera House, they project onto buildings. Anything you can do with light and art yeah, yeah, fits yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. So if you can't come this year, maybe next year. Next year for sure, yeah. We're pretty busy at the moment uh, taking orders for this hardware. But yeah, next year for sure. Sounds great. So outside of art installations, what other uses do you see in the near future? Uh, so at the moment we're doing uh, several uh, validation exercises of different markets. So the ones, the key ones that are working well just now are education, obviously teaching children and university students all about geography, physics, chemistry. We can do real-time mathematical formula simulations. It's a really engaging way. We only need one hardware device and you can have 10 people looking at it at the same time. Because of its form factor, we've made it intentionally a square screen. And that's not uh, that's intentional, and that's because it, we have this concept of being direction agnostic. So when people gather around it, they don't congregate along the longest side of a 16 by 9 screen. So uh, education is one. Digital out-of-home advertising is the terminology used for any sort of advertising, for car engines to liquid simulation to fashion, watches, jewelry, that sort of thing is another one. Simulation and uh, data visualization is another one. So companies with existing 3D assets that maybe are complicated, such as mining, uh, mechanical engineering, geophysical, you know, aerospace stuff. That's the sort of thing where we can uh, we can display that sort of data in a really intriguing way. And it's, yeah, so that's a, that's another that's another use case. But every day we're getting new use cases that spring out of nowhere, which we hadn't previously considered. So. We're not going to second guess what we think might be the best use case. We're waiting for the public uh, to, uh, to tell us what they think is the best use case. And what's the file format for these 3D images and videos? So natively at the moment we support two file formats. So those are STL, the standard 3D file format for 3D printing. Now that's a vector file format and monochrome. So you can zoom in on the geometry as far as you want. We also support something called KV6, which is a volumetric data format, which was created by Ken Silverman, our chief computer scientist, as part of Duke Nukem. And that's a volumetric, like a Minecraft sampled cube sort of thing. So that allows you to have color in your geometry. So if you've got an OBJ file or a 3DS file or any of these sort of standard file formats, you can use a program called Poly2Vox, which is a piece of freeware, and that will convert it to a KV6 file, which then can be displayed on the device in color. So yeah, we can, depending on how much demand there is, create a file format for any, such as Diacom for MRI or FBX for, or even HTML5. There's no, there's no limit. As long as we've got a specification that describes the format, we can write a plugin that will render that natively. So people who are doing computer-aided design for 3D objects like 3D printing, they'd be able to look straight away before they printed it out? Yeah, absolutely. We had a, a recent communication from a 3D metal metal centered 3D printing manufacturer. Now, those type of printers, when they print, you can't see anything until they're finished because they layer down metal powder and then they laser sinter it. So they were thinking maybe we could have this in the printer at the same time, showing you as it's going, what stage it's up to. Unlike your desktop 3D printers where you can see it's printing as it's going with the sort of, you know, 3D printed deposition stuff. Those, yeah, there's definitely that. That, that sort of thing is possible, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, we have a, a website, voxon.co, Voxon uh, Photonics is the company name. We also have a development kit on our website that uh, programmers can download, and that includes a simulator. So it effectively renders your code on the computer screen. So what you see is a 3D 
volumetric display on your computer screen that interoperates exactly like the hardware. So, for example, if you want to write a game or some kind of interactive media installation, you can download the dev kit and use a source code that's supplied for all existing demos to create some kind of thing. So if it runs on your simulator, it'll run on our actual device. So you can evaluate your, if you want to challenge your programming skills or if you want to evaluate the dev kit for your own use. You might be thinking of buying one for your school or university or you might be thinking of hiring one for an event. Then if you want to test that hypothesis, you can get started with the dev kit straight away and see what it can do. Or you can just use the existing dev kit file viewers to display content that you already have, like STLs and OBJs and things like that. Yep. And uh, yeah, we're based in Adelaide. We're uh, looking to roll this stuff out for different use cases, and uh, we're always interested to hear from people who have got cool ideas. Gavin Smith, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Gavin Smith, Chief Technical Officer for Voxon Photonics, talking about their 3D display. You can find out more at voxon.co. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Make a voice memo on your phone or there's a tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinion, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, then you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.